Hi everyone, good morning and welcome to Mr. West Podcast. I'm your host, Sam West from Palm Springs, California. I'm also an associate with Benny and DeVille uh, Homes here in the Russian Mirage office. I do this podcast because I love meaningful conversations. And uh, today's topic is real estate. Now that in itself is a meaningful, handful topic. So my guest today is Deepthu Willard, and she is an editor at MillionAcres.com. Hi. Hi, great How to are see you? you. Good to see you. How are you? Doing great. So um, before we get started, why don't you tell uh, the audience, the listeners, what is MillionAcres.com? Sure. So Million Acres evolved out of The Motley Fool, which is a well-known uh, real uh, stock brand, uh, stock picking brand. And so Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years. They decided they wanted to get into real estate investing and understand real estate and provide information for real estate investors. So that's how Million Acres came to be. And we're about a two-year-old brand. So is it fair to say, and I love having you here today because um, it's, it's, it's challenging to get somebody's opinion, not even opinion, to get somebody's point of view on a topic like real estate without being so biased. And I, I've heard your last podcast that you actually were being interviewed and you have wealth of information and you're not a realtor or a broker or a mortgage company that you're just sort of like seeing things for one way. And I, and it's just, I struggle with that because too much optimism to me is, is, is problematic and too much pessimism is also problematic. So um, you had a love for real estate for a long time. When did that start? I think I've always loved real estate. I think it's always interesting when you interview real estate agents, you find out that they've always loved real estate. But my angle from it is I've always loved writing about it. So I wrote about real estate for America Online for many years. I worked at Realtor.com. And then I worked at a couple of real estate brokerages in Los Angeles on the marketing and communication side. And how is editing different being an editor than the past that you have been doing? Well, I sort of went on to real estate PR and then I worked for inside.com and I wrote their real estate newsletter. And that's how I became uh, on the Motley Fool's radar. So when they were looking to start the brand, they reached out to me. And the idea of starting something fresh that was not residential, not commercial, but both and really focused just on real estate investing kind of really appealed to me. And so it's just been an incredible journey about learning about some of the parts of the industry that I didn't know because I came from mostly the residential side and now I've learned a lot about real estate investment trusts, about rental property investing, about commercial real estate. I'm working on a book on real estate crowdfunding. So there's just Love all it. of these ways of investing in real estate that I wasn't really aware of. And it's, right. it's fascinating. You know, there's so much out there. Right. So let's jump right in. So let's talk about what I call this timing that we're in. And I call it sort of very active market. I know people don't want me to say that, but I call it reactive as opposed to healthy. Um, everybody's just reacting, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Where, do you, why do you see that? Ha why do you see that is? I mean, obviously, it's supply and demand, so we get that. But I'm not even referring to that end of it. Um, what changed in the last couple of years, at least in the last year, that created this manic uh, uh, sort of behavior? Uh, from the buyers and the sellers? 
Well, it's really interesting to me because I've talked to a bunch of economists. Nobody's ever seen this before. Nobody really knows how to predict what's going to happen because when the real estate market paused uh, in March of 2020, we didn't really expect it to come back the way it did. And so the sites like Zillow and Redfin and all the others, they saw a ton of traffic and they thought, well, that's people at home just, you know, dreaming. But then all of a sudden it turned to this thing where there was so much demand for buyers and there was so much demand for properties in resort markets uh, on the luxury side. Like all of this demand came from a bunch of really different places. It wasn't just the traditional starter home market. And now, even a year later, I mean, supply, you know, it's dwindled to practically nothing. And especially in resort markets, people are still so unsure about when we're all going back to work, what that looks like. Is it going to be a hybrid workplace? So all of that is impacting the market as well. It's so hard to predict what's going to happen next. But do you think the I mean, from your, from what you've been seeing and, and, and the investing part of it is, do you, do you think that the last year's behavior and last year obviously is coming to, uh, to back to normal, so to speak, mm-hmm. what is that going to create? It depends on if, if supply eases up, if people start putting their homes on the market. So far, it hasn't happened the way it traditionally does. You know, you have that spring season. That spring season, buyers are there, sellers aren't there. And at the same time, you have new homes. You know, um, the price of an, uh, median price of a new home now and the median price of an existing sales, uh, sales home nationwide from NAR around the same price, right? That's never happened before where you can buy a new home or an existing home for a relatively equivalent price. And so that is one thing that's really interesting. The other thing I'm really watching too is single family build to rent and and single family rentals in general. The, The demand is huge. And so there's a lot of talk about what if there's a bubble like the great financial crisis, right? Are we gonna have that same problem? I don't think we will because you have two other things now that you have that you didn't have then. One of them is iBuying and the other is those companies like Invitation Homes that have bought up these massive, you know, 50, 60,000 rental properties, single family homes. So it's just a very different world than it was 10 years ago. Very much so. Uh, And you also said, which I have heard this years ago about New York. So goes New York, so goes the rest of the nation. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing this back when I first started. And I remember we used to say, if there's a fire, God forbid, on the East Coast, it, it will fly to the east to the West Coast. Sorry, from the east to the west. And that's how things get to Germany. Now, New York suffered a lot in the last year. Um, COVID-wise, financial-wise, commercial real estate, residential real estate. When that happened during that period, the West Coast didn't have that issue. So how does that theory apply when in fact it didn't really apply? It did and it didn't because where it hit was San Francisco. So New York and San Francisco both saw their their rents drop. But but no, it didn't happen as much in Los Angeles. I think partly because LA is, is by nature more spread out. 
rents went down a little bit in Seattle, but then again, you didn't really have, um, you know, you didn't have a lot of job loss in, in Seattle and you didn't have a lot of people necessarily leaving in droves. Part of the thing in New York is just that prices are so high so that when people suddenly could work from home for six months or possibly longer, they just, they just took advantage of it. And the other factor with New York is it's a truly international city, right? So it's, um, it gets a lot of real estate investing from all over the world. And when you cut off that, that source of international, you know, that really makes a big difference. Saw that in Miami too, of course, because Miami gets so much investment from, you know, in condos from, you know, from Latin America and other places right. that had a real impact. And that's not coming back quite yet. You've also mentioned last time I heard you talk about the, uh, um, the investors in the future in the medical office space. Mm-hmm. Do you want to mention that? I thought that was very Do- interesting. Yeah, there's a couple trends there. One of them is uh, life sciences. So life sciences is sort of somewhere between office and and medical. So like lab work. And of course, we've all thought a lot about that in the last uh, year or so. But uh, but life sciences is big. It's almost as big as industrial on the commercial investing side right now. And the other thing is, yeah, medical in general wellness. We're seeing a lot of like mall conversions, adding medical offices, adding things like uh, spa services like Botox and things like that. You've got this focus on wellness. And I think that was happening before COVID, the whole uh, aging of America, long tail demographic there. But COVID kind of brought it home to everybody. So all of a sudden, everybody wants to spend more on wellness. And there's a there's more of a focus on wellness in apartments. There's focuses on things like air and light. And so all of that is sort of trending, contributing to that trend in the office space as well with medical. So I'm not sure if you know about this, but I, I'm trying to figure it out as well. What do you know about the people that are in forbearance that are about to end in June that obviously during COVID, you know, took us, the lenders took a stop on. Uh, my understanding is, and I don't know if you, you, you know this or not, my understanding is that the lenders did something which I thought was great, that the, uh, the uh, borrowers have the option to, at the end of June, is to add that own amount to the end of the loan, which is great. If you can afford it, you know, if you can catch up. Uh, how do you see that playing out come June, because June is next month, come June, how do you see that playing out and how would that affect the bigger picture as far as um, that flood of sellers? Uh, I mean, I heard so many different stories. The foreclosure is going to like skyrocket. It's not going to really matter. The numbers I saw are this big. So what what, what are your thoughts on that? And uh, do you have any Yeah, I think forbearance, it definitely depends on the bank because some of the lenders are doing what you said and some of the other lenders aren't. And they're, you know, after forbearance ends, they're expecting a large payment. And that's that's obviously bad news for people that don't have that available. But the good news comparing this to the previous crisis is uh, people have a lot of equity in their home. There's not a lot of people underwater the way there was during the great financial crisis. So I feel like People have more options now. There's different types of, you know, you can get a home equity loan. There's different ways to kind of get through it. And I think that there's more of a more of a safety net than there used to be. I've talked to a lot of people. I'm not seeing a giant foreclosure crisis at, at all, but it is likely that it will tick up a little bit. But, but 
as we talked about before, there's so many other ways that people can can deal with their houses now in terms of, you know, they could Airbnb it, they could, you know, share out a part of it. There's so many different things that people can do. And I think people are more aware of that now. And where is the rental market? Obviously, if you can't afford to buy, you got to rent, you have to live somewhere. So where is the rental market playing in all of this? Because obviously landlords, which also suffered a great deal during last year, but they couldn't, you know, evict, they couldn't raise the rent, they couldn't, I mean, I heard horrific stories on NPR uh, yeah. and, and their options that were given were not acceptable. Where is the rent going to be played out in this scenario? And um, obviously, you know, how, if it goes to a certain limit or it gets to be increased, how could I be able to afford, if I can't afford to buy, can I afford to rent? Well, a couple of interesting things are happening there. First of all is, uh, I mean, during the crisis, during COVID-19, you had like state, local, and then federal eviction moratoriums. And it was such a confusing patchwork that nobody kind of really knew what they were doing. And a lot of landlords weren't getting uh, assistance of any sort. So now those are gradually starting to expire. So you're going to see some more evictions. The courts are already getting backed up. Rents our rents went down a little bit last year, starting to go back up again. Uh, it's very hard to find a single family rental. People are um, still interested in those over multifamily. So multifamily has been, been struggling a little bit. So um, there is definitely going to be a little bit of an eviction problem though coming up. And what does that look like as far as, I mean, that's another conversation because I think it's like you know, a whole different problem, especially in California that we're dealing with uh, the homelessness and that's gonna, even in San Francisco, it's, it's, un, it's unbelievable. Uh, that's a different conversation. Um, the income, the ratio of the income, people that are now going back to work or they've been working or going back to work, relatively does not correlate to the ratio, the increases in the rent or the mortgage or the buying. How is that gonna play out? Well, on the mortgage side, for the past couple of years, you've had those low interest rates, right? So that's sort of that's sort of limited that affordability problem to some extent. But now we're just getting to a a point where the prices are just too high that even low interest rates aren't going to make up the difference and the interest rates are slowly starting to rise. So there is a real problem with that. I think that the federal government is certainly aware of that. I think that's one of the reasons we have a push toward a higher minimum wage is partly because people can't afford housing. And that's a real concern. And I feel like there's there's a lot of talk about it right now, but there's not necessarily a bunch of legislation in place. There's a bunch of great plans. But the interesting thing about anytime you want to make a move in, you know, to solve a problem like this, you really need public and private capital together. And so that's, that's kind of what we want to see. How do you incentivize developers to build affordable housing, to renovate existing housing? How do you make it pencil out for them? How do you use tax incentives, things like opportunity zones? How do you make it, you know, make it pencil out, make it, you know, make it incentivized, make it worth it. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. So where do you, speaking of investments, where are you seeing commercial investors, investors uh, doing or thinking going forward? Well, right now you see so much activity uh, headed toward the Sun Belt states, what they call the like smile states. Like last year, Phoenix had a huge year for housing. You know, Austin is like 
the city right now. So you see a lot of investors looking in, in those markets, trying to get into places like Nashville where prices are rising. So I see a lot of activity there for uh, individual investors, like, like uh, house flippers or rental properties. They can't find a, a property to, to buy, to make it, to make it work. And that's one of the things that's happening is that, that, yeah, there's no res, there's no inventory for, uh, normal residential buyers, there's no inventory for real estate investors either. So there's a lot of like, I mean, you're probably seeing a ton of like people doing letters, campaigns, anything they can do to get someone to list anything. Well, I've seen that to be honest. I mean, I went through that in the last one in 2000, what was it? 2004. We did, you know, the bottle of wine thing and, you know, and we've done all that. So I'm just watching this now and I'm getting a little jaded because I'm, you know, years later, are we doing this again? You know, uh, are we back to that again? You know, they're writing the letter and my cat and my dog and <laughs> what and all of that. Uh, except now there's a new thing now. You got to be careful with the letter. This stuff wasn't happening mm-hmm. in 2004 about being, you know, uh, somehow discriminatory. Or, it, yeah, have to, fair, fair housing. Fair yeah. housing. So things change. So you also mentioned, I remember places like, the Hamptons and also like here in Palm Springs were, were, mm-hmm. were, were like a still, well, the Hamptons of, I call it the Hamptons of, of LA, you know, we're outside of yeah. LA. And you said there was a huge demand for that. Why do you think that is? Because people can work from anywhere is a big part of it. And people okay. got a, a, they realized life is better when you don't have a terrible commute. Life is better when you're not struggling to get anywhere. You know, you lived in Los Angeles. It's once you have your commute time back in your life, you're like, how many hours was that? Right, right. So, so I think people are people want a better lifestyle. So that will change again because things are going sort of back, whatever that means. So what is that going to play a factor in? Well, I have to go to work now. I have to drive you know, an hour, one way I have to commute. Is it going to change the whole narratives and the dynamics of what we've been seeing? I don't think we can go back because part of the thing that happened before, right, was that people would say, companies would say, well, you can't work from home. You're not productive. Well, that argument's out the window. So I'm hearing a lot about the hybrid workforce, about people being in the office maybe two or three days a week. So if you've got a house in the Hamptons Maybe you get a smaller place in New York. Maybe, you know, the buzzword last year was co-primary home. Instead of having a second home, you have, you know, basically two homes that you kind of toggle back and forth between. So I think you're going to still Such problem. That. Just have two houses to go back and forth. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, but you can have like a small studio in the right. city where you need to be and then have your, have your main house somewhere where it's more affordable. Right. Okay. Last but not least, what do you tell... Um, a new agent coming on board in this, uh, I call it manic acceleration. Like I called it earlier, very active timing. And of course they have the, 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 the story in their head. You know, everything is like fabulous and rosy and it doesn't like, go and make a hundred, 200 grand in my first year. What do you tell somebody coming on um, you? Well, I think I was listening to Redfin's earnings call last night, and they said something really interesting. Glenn Kelman, who's the CEO of Redfin, was talking about the fact that when new agents come on, they're usually buyer's agents, right? They're usually helping buyers find houses. Unfortunately, because of the current market, they're, you know, they're getting outbid left and right. You know, maybe they 
try a few times and then they leave or something like that. So Redfin actually had to, because people weren't getting full transactions in their first year, they actually had to, uh, they're issuing an incentive for buyer's agents who make, who their clients make an offer, whether or not the offer gets accepted, which is just really weird, but, but it shows what's happening right now. It's very hard for, for buyer's agents to get that first transaction. It's a really tough market to be in. I mean, right now there are more real estate agents in the country than there are houses for sale. Which is just a mind blowing you know, statistic to funny. me. I used to say that there was a mantra in Miami, which I lived in Miami for a couple of years. There are, let me let me say it correctly. There are more. There are as many real estate agents as many as there are cars. <laughs> which there's a lot of cars in Miami because it's it's very crowded. Yeah. Or yes. Uh, so that's the same. And now to hear that in the country is a bit daunting. Um, but yeah, also, there, the, go ahead. Go ahead. I also believe it's a good time to practice. So if you can hang in there, if you can, and, you know, survive, you're going to rock it because you've, you've gotten beaten up so bad or you've gotten to learn and hear stories in your first six months to a year that the rest should be, should be, I say should be. Um, well, you and I are both fans of Nick Siegel and his book on, on negotiation. I mean, what a year to learn negotiation. This, right? this is an awesome training ground. <laughs> By the, by the way, the book is called, it's just listening on my own terms by Nick Siegel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great little book. It's, it's big. Um, um, dear friend, great guy. Um, yes. yes. Um, that took me back for a minute. Okay. Let me refocus my head. Uh, <laughs> what do you tell real estate offices, brokers that are running the show that are actually telling their agents every day, you know, um, word of wisdom to, 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 to facilitate their staff and their members, well, not their staff, but also their agents. It is such a challenging market. I think you really have to support your agents. I think you really have to know what is happening out there and, you know, and, and give them the tools that they need. A lot of agents have never experienced a market like this. And so it's really a challenge. I think that being a broker is, it's really hard in this current market because you have these, you know, you have massive brokerages, you have all of this consolidation happening. I think especially for the independents, you have an advantage. I still believe so much in independent, uh, independent brokerages. I've worked for a couple and I just really love what they can do in a local market. Define independent broker. I mean, I know what independent broker means. Define, <laughs> define uh, the scale of that. Like what makes an independent broker the way you, the way you see it? Uh, 200? Agents, 600, 900? Uh, well, yeah, I would, I would say probably smaller than, than 500. But, but I think it's also more the spirit because there can be right. a larger brokerage, but you can play like a local if you're involved in local politics, if you're involved in zoning, if you're involved in the social issues of your community. That's really important. And that's, I feel like in, in investing overall, we're seeing more of a focus on impact investing on ESG and, and, you know, environmental social governance, all of that stuff is more important. I think that matters on the residential real estate side too. I think that especially the younger generation want to work with people who believe the same things that they believe and who believe in working for a better community. My my challenge in the last year that I have seen, and I, because I've never liked to work out of home. I'm not a home person that works out of home. I've went to the office every single day for 20 plus <laughs> years. 
I just love getting dressed. I love going in. I like to say hi to Nick and, you know, and powwow and go to lunch and see you. To me, that made my day. The last year, it allowed, it didn't allow, it forced every agent to work out of their pajamas at home and, and do their thing. The market is easier, not easier for, for some, but it became very home driven. And I think some lost and you couldn't go to the office to mingle. You, or the meetings are virtual. These, I, I think, I don't know how you feel about it. Is that going to leave an impact on the, on the culture, on the networking? What makes, you know, I think it is a people industry. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we need to, I need to see you. I need to hear you. We need to co- have converse. Uh, is that going to create an issue down the road? Because now people got used to uh, virtual and I don't even know what you look like. I've just seen you. I mean, I know you, but I've just seen you on a screen, but I've never seen you in person. And I think that's taking away part of the, the human element to it. I would agree with that. I mean, first of all, real estate agents, mostly mostly extroverts. I'm sort of an introvert, which is why I've, I've always loved working with real estate agents because I just they're so much fun. But there's something interesting there too about this idea of how does a real estate agent grow their business? They grow their business through referrals through, and through name recognition, through being known. If you're not seeing people in person, you're not remembering people the same way. Exactly. It's sort of, I mean, that's a real problem because think yeah. about the difference between when you read a physical book versus reading a book like on your Kindle. You don't remember things the same way. There's all these studies about this. It's the same thing with people. If I'm not meeting someone in person, I'm not imprinting with them the same way. Right. And I'm seeing, I'm, I'm seeing way more people in my life right now, but I'm seeing them all through Zoom. Right. And I'm not remembering the conversations the same way I would if you and I were having coffee somewhere and I'm looking at you and we're, we're experiencing that moment together. So how do I bring that back after we're back? Pull them back out again and say, you know, get out of your pajamas and come <laughs> in because I know you got used to it and we're all independent. You can't tell a real estate agent what to do or, you know, how to do it. How do I bring him back to say, look, we need to be human again? How do you, what's your take on that? How do I bring them back without having to hear them? I, I think they're going to come back anyway. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I want to go outside and, oh, and hang out with people. And <laughs> so I think, I think that people want that. I think real estate agents especially want that, but I think they also have to understand why it's good for their business, that it's it's really important for, for agents to, to talk with each other and know each other. I mean, one of the things in Los Angeles, you and I both know, everybody had to know everybody and work with everybody. You know, you've got these huge multi-million dollar deals. You've got all kinds of egos in Los Angeles right. real estate. Right. If If they couldn't find a way to work together, nobody would ever make any money. And this is exactly how I feel. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm hoping that... Um when things are definitely over, um, that element, especially here in the Coachella Valley, which we're relatively intimate, um, yes. even though we have a lot of Asians, but we're very, it's a very small community. It's a very small world. Everybody knows everybody, unlike LA, but yeah, even LA, everybody knows everybody. So uh, <laughs> my goal is to bring that back. My goal is for the industry to become human and um, get out and connect. Uh, Deidre, you've been a pleasure as I thought it would be. <laughs> and, uh, thank you so much for the information. It's, uh, it's, it, to me, I enjoyed it. And I hope the listeners yes. um, 
uh, found this of value. If you have, I know now it's a mantra, say this, but please subscribe. Um, it makes us able to do more of this uh, and bring people like Dietra to you. And uh, on that note, thank you so much for coming and I'll see you guys next week. Take care, everyone.